Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring transhumanism and the technological singularity. My guest is Dr. Jason Reza Giorgiani, who is the author of Prometheus and Atlas, World State of Emergency, Novel Folklore, Lovers of Sophia and Iranian Leviathan. Welcome, Jason. It's a pleasure to be with you again, Jeffrey. It's a pleasure to have you back with me in Albuquerque. I'm delighted to see you. So transhumanism is, is a very technical subject. I mean, as far as I know, the people who are really into it are techies for the most part. I, I can just say, uh, by way of introducing the topic, that occasionally I post announcements of our new thinking aloud videos to some of the transhumanist discussion groups, and I often get comments like they don't want to have anything to do with anything of a parapsychological nature. They think it's all woo-woo. That's right, and it's very unfortunate because, uh, as I hope to explore in the course of our discussion, the origins of transhumanism actually lie in alchemy, in the revival of alchemy during the Renaissance. Uh, and, you know, the idea of transhumanism is inextricable from the concept of the technological singularity. And when you look at the, uh, the coining of that term by John von Neumann uh, in the 1950s, there's nothing explicitly materialist about the way in which uh, von Neumann defines the technological singularity. He describes this, he describes the, the singularity as, uh, uh, he says that uh, technology is developing at an ever advancing rate, uh, leading up to, quote, some essential singularity, unquote, uh, in the history of the race, as he puts it. Um, past which human affairs as we know them cannot continue. And so there's nothing uh, intrinsically um, mechanistic about this or, or overly reductive about this definition of the singularity. And it's worthy of note in that connection that among the uh, proponents of, of um, uh, the view that consciousness plays a fundamental role in, in uh, manifesting physical phenomena, uh, among the the uh, first generation of quantum physicists, uh, John von Neumann was one of the quantum physicists who took most seriously um, the integral role that consciousness mm -hmm. plays uh, at a fundamental level in in the universe. In the collapse of the wave function, and in other words, uh, uh, two things: one, that that consciousness is responsible for everything we experience in physics; everything we can measure is measured by consciousness, but that consciousness you can't get underneath it, so to speak, that consciousness is, is the bedrock of reality. Yeah, uh, Bohr, Heisenberg, and von Neumann were, uh, Erwin Schrodinger were among the, the people who took very seriously the role of consciousness in um, the manifestation of, of physical phenomena. And then there were others who uh, were in favor of a more mechanistic, materialistically reductionist interpretation of, of quantum physics. But the fact that uh, von Neumann was one of these uh, advocates for, you know, taking consciousness seriously in interpretation of quantum theory uh, also underlines the uh, non-materialistic 
notion of the singularity uh, at the moment that he's, he's coining the term in the 1950s. We should also mention Max Planck and Eugene Wigner, al along with von Neumann. But let's talk about the term singularity. It's, it's uh, a word I think many people have heard. Uh, I've heard it used in terms of the Big Bang, like that was a singularity. Yeah, the idea is that um, it, it's a point past which you cannot extrapolate from the past into the future. It's a catastrophe in, in the classical sense um, that René Tom defined the term uh, catastrophe. It's a vortex uh, where models that are based on, you know, extrapolation forward uh, uh, from data about the past break down. Mm -hmm. So, so on a graph with, let's say, an exponential increase, it's the point where the graph spikes. Mm -hmm. And there is, there's a, f something beyond that spike phenomena continue. Um, you know, presumably there'll be some form of society, but it's impossible to extrapolate in the same way as we have been from the past into the future, mm -hmm. uh, after that singularity has occurred. Now, I have interviewed a guest, um, Nicole, um, her last name escapes me at the moment. <laughs> anyway, she came out of Singularity University. And uh, that, I believe, was founded by you know, Ray Kurzweil, I, I think. And it, it's a whole school of thought based on the idea that the singularity is going to occur in a very um, mechanical way, you could say, that artificial intelligence will reach a point where, uh, where the computers themselves are more complex than the human brain. Right. I mean, and that's one pathway to the singularity. Um, after von Neumann, I think one of the most uh, uh, significant definitions of the concept, the technological singularity, was in a paper by that name, uh, which was written by Werner Vinge, a, a science fiction author and technologist. It was a 1993 paper, I believe, called The Technological Singularity. And uh, Werner Vinge points out that Strong AI is only one of four pathways to the technological singularity and to the transhuman condition that would follow from that. Mm -hmm. uh, the other th three, so, so I mean, the strong AI, uh, vision, which is the one that it's, uh, um, that is championed by Kurzweil is the idea that, uh, engineering a superhuman intelligence inside of a computer system will by itself lead to this singularity mm -hmm. and the, the AI will then manage our lives uh, you know more effectively than, than we could run human society and we will effectively be assimilated into whatever form of life it determines for itself uh, but then there are three other pathways uh, as, as Vinge argues and uh, one of them is that Computer networks will become so sophisticated and human minds will be so enmeshed in cyberspace that the uh, sheer networking of human intelligence will give rise to uh, a kind of cognitive functioning that is not reducible to any one of the humans participating in the network. So while there's no centralized strong AI, the network as a whole develops a kind of a functional intelligence that is superhuman. And that leads to the technological singularity. Then another path is that cybernetic implants, uh, allow us to, um, become transhuman, to uh, break through into the next phase of our evolution. And the thing about cybernetic implants is that they're not 
uh, wholly replacing the organic brain uh, w w with all of its evolutionary history. So if it is in fact the case that um, the kinds of capacities studied by parapsychologists like telepathy and psychokinesis have some, uh, as of yet, um, uh, you know, a, a kind of origin in the evolutionary history of man that has not yet been understood within the mechanistic and materialist paradigm that biologists are working with, uh, the cybernetic implants can, uh, can take us into a post-human condition where uh, we still have access to those capacities. And in effect, um, the, the computer components within us that are enhancing our intelligence are parasitic on a whole evolutionary biological history. Uh, rather than attempting to replace that simply by modeling a human mind in another medium like silicon or treating consciousness as if it's simply uh, information processing. Mm -hmm. So that's it's another path. And if you think about these two so far, the Vinge lays out in the technological singularity, the idea of a computer of a computer network involving humans uh, developing its own intelligence and the idea of cybernetic implants uh, as a path to a transhuman condition. The two of these fused together is... Um, essentially the vision of the Borg in Star Trek The Next Generation of a uh, cybernetic species with a hive mind. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, you know, one vision of the transhuman condition that doesn't require a, a centralized strong AI. And then the last one, uh, Vinge suggests, is that uh, genetic engineering alone could increase human intelligence to a uh, superhuman level where the people who have had their, their IQ boosted through germline genetic engineering and other biotechnologies would begin to think and act in ways that we could, could never even conceive of. Mm -hmm. And, uh, whether that by itself, um, you know, represents the arrival of the technological singularity or not, at the very least, we could say that those genetically enhanced humans would bring about the singularity. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and the idea again is that they they would they would do so in ways that we can't uh, extrapolate based on our study of, of human societies to date. Mm -hmm. Now I think you shared with me a term that's popular in the uh, transhumanist uh, community. I think is a grin. Yes. So um, that's genetics, robotics, information, and nanotechnology. And the idea is that the convergence of these uh, advancing technologies will bring about a transhuman condition. Mm -hmm. um, so, for example, uh, Hans Moravik uh, has argued, he's a, he's a roboticist, he's argued that the approach that was taken for decades, uh, all the way from the 1950s onward, when we had, you know, these, these uh, uh, sci-fi visions of robots like in Forbidden Planet and and uh, I mean, even in the Jetsons and so on in popular culture, the approach that was taken by robotics of uh, modeling a robot on a human being, of trying to replicate a human being uh, in a mechanical form was mistaken. And, and that's what led to the stagnation of robotics for so many decades. And the robotics revolution is going to take place by uh, adopting two different approaches that ultimately converge. And one is a bottom-up approach of studying how insects function and building biomimetic robots that can navigate the environment as effectively as, as certain insects. Uh, and, and they can develop an evolutionary history of their own, learning how to successfully navigate obstacles and effectively interact with objects. And then you, you take this uh, bottom-up approach uh, 
and you fuse it with a top-down approach uh, of developing more and more effective expert systems uh, of working on artificial intelligence. And as Moravik puts it, you, you have to drive a spike through this top-down approach and the bottom-up approach to create uh, really effective robots who may not look anything like human beings, but they'll be able to navigate the environment very effectively and uh, have a high degree of intelligence and competence. And, and that's what seems to be going on right now in the field of robotics. Yes, this is, I mean, he wrote he wrote about this, I think, two two decades ago or so, and he was anticipating the shift that's taken, and advocating mm -hmm. the shift that has in fact taken yeah. place in robotics right now, which is uh, one revolutionary development um, leading to this technological singularity. Another is nanotechnology. And so when we talk about robotics, we have to remember that there are robotics that are, uh, I mean, there are robots that are, um, that are being developed on a molecular scale. Mm -hmm. And these could accomplish uh, tremendous uh, feats of, of surgery and so on and so forth. And they could be really effective in the medical profession. Um, but uh, you know, they, they could also pose really catastrophic dangers to society. I mean, there's the infamous gray goose scenario where if you have uh, nanobots that can rearrange material on a molecular level, uh, if they were to get out of control and, you know, if we were to see the equivalent of a computer virus inside programmable nanobots, they could begin to degenerate all of the material around them, basically attack everything in the environment. Uh, and so, you know, one of the, the dangers of this, uh, of this technological singularity brought about by GRIN, by genetics, robotics, information, and nanotechnology, is that uh, it forces us to develop a new model for how to organize society. Well, earlier you pointed out that the, the whole concept of transhumanism has its origins in ancient alchemy. Uh, so let's, let's go back to that and uh, look at some of the historical precedents that may give us more of a context. Right. Well, you know, the Russian cosmists of the 19th century um, were mystics uh, who can I think definitely be seen as precursors of transhumanism, as heralds of transhumanism. Uh, Nikolai uh, Fyodorov, or um, uh, Fedorov, to use the anglicized form of his name, uh, was a Russian Orthodox thinker who was very into um, the scientific and technological advancements of his day. And he came up with a fascinating theory about how humanity would colonize the entire cosmos and then be able to somehow uh, re-engineer the people who had died in the past and populate this kingdom of God with the, the you know, departed. So it's a kind of technologically uh, mediated vision of the resurrection mm -hmm. where, you know, the, the human colonized cosmos uh, is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, and uh, the resurrection is accomplished through technology. Mm -hmm. The same idea has been advocated by the American physicist Frank Tipler. Yeah, and um, Tipler, I think, was influenced by uh, Teilhard de Chardin, his idea of the Omega Point. And, uh, you know, these Russian uh, cosmists, because the roots of their thought were in, the, in Russian Orthodoxy, in Russian Orthodox mysticism, they were... Um, in large part uh, marginalized, for the most part marginalized by the Soviet um, establishment. So they were driven into exile in Paris 
And because there was always a connection between, you know, the, the Russian aristocracy and the French. And so they, they chose to take up residence in Paris. And I think that, uh, Teller de Chardin came under the influence of Russian, the Russian Cosmos School of Fedorov in Paris. And so there is a, an indirect connection between Tipler and the anthropic cosmological principle, uh, and, um, the Russian Cosmists. I, I, I said that for the most part, you know, they were sidelined by the Soviet establishment, but there was one very important exception, and that was Konstantin Tsiolkovsky. And it, he actually was accepted by the Soviet establishment. He, he was made the head of the Soviet uh, rocketry program. So, uh, Tsiolkovsky was basically the Russian equivalent, the Soviet equivalent of, uh, Jack Parsons. And, um, Jack, who founded the California Institute of Technology and the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, uh, was, I recall, uh, a, a friend of L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology and a student of Aleister Crowley. Right. Well, the parallel, you know, that I'm trying to make is that both of these men, the founder of the American uh, rocket program and the, the founder of the Soviet rocket program and the vision of, of uh, you know, sending cosmonauts out into space, both of these men were occultists mm. uh, and, and had this very Promethean vision of using technology to um, affect the next evolutionary leap for humanity. So, for example, Tsiolkovsky, uh, unlike Fedorov, um, didn't, he, I mean, he thought that basically Russian cosmism was paying lip service to Russian orthodoxy and that really the spirit of cosmism was Promethean. And so he, he took a much more active approach in the advocacy of technolo technology to transform the human condition to the extent, for example, of being a, a very prominent advocate of eugenics and of, of the use of eugenics, uh, by the cosmonauts as they colonized the universe and left terrestrial humanity behind as a kind of husk. And, and it's interesting that, you know, despite the uh, Soviet opposition to eugenics, despite its being beyond the pale of official state ideology, he was seen as such a valuable rocket scientist that, you know, effectively uh, he laid the groundwork for the Soviet space program. Mm -hmm. Now, uh you mentioned uh, this Promethean ideal, which brings up, of course, uh, Mary Shelley in her novel Frankenstein as, as another precursor of transhumanism. Yeah, and, you know, Mary Shelley uh, confesses that the, the parts of her novel that have to do with uh, Dr. Frankenstein being under the influence of uh, Renaissance and medieval alchemists uh, were inspired by her overhearing her husband's discussions with, with various friends of his, like Lord Byron. Um, Percy Shelley was steeped in alchemy. Percy Shelley was, was uh, such a deep student of alchemy that uh, some of the people who knew him in his uh, tragically brief life believed that, you know, he was going to be the Isaac Newton of chemistry. He would do alchemy experiments in his uh, dorm room in, in Oxford. Um, and... Uh, his both poetry and prose writings are full of uh, alchemical ideas in particular the idea of the the alchemical androgen um shelley did a translation of plato's symposium that's quite famous and he he believed this narrative in plato's symposium uh which was somewhat common to classical antiquity in general uh this narrative that um 
humanity had been androgynous in, in the, some pro, primordial epoch, that uh, the primordial form of man was not yet sexually differentiated, and that uh, the, the, the sexual dichotomy was one of the signs of the fall of man from grace. And in order to regain Eden, in order to reverse the fall, uh, we also had to reverse the uh, sexual polarization of humanity and uh, bring about uh, the uh, kind of alchemical androgyny. Uh, so, you know, th this is not unique to Shelley. You see this idea in, in other thinkers in the 19th century. So, for example, uh, Edward Carpenter, uh, the founder of the Uranian movement, also thought that um, uh, heavenly man, um, Uranus, which later became the name of one of the planets, meant uh, heaven in, in you know classical Greek. And so he thought that uh, man in the heavenly state was androgynous and had, uh, had uh, undergone sexual differentiation as part of a, a you know, transformation into the material condition. Uh, kind of similar to Steiner's idea that, mm -hmm. you know, the, the early form of humanity wasn't entirely material and, and only in stages became increasingly material. Uh, and, you know, Carpenter looked at this, um, this spike in cases of hermaphroditism that were being reported in the 19th century by medical doctors. And whereas a lot of the, the doctors in the 19th century were trying to classify, you know, these hermaphrodites as having like a true sex, that these are men with deformities or women with that, you know, they're, they're biologically female, but they have certain deformities. Carpenter was saying that these cases of her hermaphroditism were actually atavisms. They were, um, you know, the manifestation of, of, uh, primordial morphological condition of humanity and also heralds of the future, uh, reemergence of, of androgyny. Uh, and so I, I think that when you look at this kind of idea in the context of the emphasis on uh, kind of a, a Promethean alchemical quest to transform humanity, uh, you could also see uh, a connection between transhumanism and transsexuality. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, so th there's that. And, you know, this, this uh, idea is present in Frankenstein also because, you know, the, the monster demands that a, a, a mate be created for him. And uh, Dr. Frankenstein is obsessing over the fact that if he creates a female uh, creature to be the companion of, of his first superhuman being, he will, uh, in effect, propagate a race of devils upon the earth and, and usher in the end of humanity. So, I mean, this is one of the earliest visions of the technological singularity of the extinction of man and of, um, you know, the, the rise of a, a post-human species on the earth. This is fascinating, and uh, I suppose it's also a bit reminiscent of the Jungian idea that the soul is androgynous. Well, yes, I mean, that's the idea. And, uh, you know, when uh, humanity was banished from Eden, it was for the sin of eating of the, the tree of knowledge, and the tree of knowledge is a symbol of science and technology. And the reason that we were banished from Eden 
is so that uh, we would not also eat of the tree of life. I mean, this point is made very explicit by the Elohim in Genesis that yeah. let's let's uh, banish them from Eden so that they don't reach out and eat also of the tree of life and become like unto us so that there's nothing we can do against them. Well, what this means is that the Elohim, the gods, the gods of Eden, are worried that humanity is going to attain immortality. And if you look at... Um, if you look at... Uh, the uh, the depiction of uh, the devas in Persian uh, miniatures, for example, you'll see that they are they are hermaphroditic. Uh, they're neither male nor female; they're both. And so, if man was created in the image of God in Genesis, um, and Adam, the primordial Adam, was created before Eve was was made from out of the rib of Adam, then as the Kabbalistic commentators, like for example in the Palestinian Talmud, uh, the, 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 the Kabbalists who wrote the Palestinian Talmud um, believed, the primordial Adam was androgynous. And so if the primordial Adam is made in the image of the Elohim and is androgynous, that means that the gods are also hermaphroditic. Let me just ask a quick question. Palestinian Talmud, did you mean the Babylonian Talmud? No, there's so there's yeah. two Talmuds. There's uh -huh. the Babylonian Talmud and the Palestinian oh, Talmud. Okay. And in the Palestinian Talmud, uh, the Palestinian version of the Talmud, there's a gloss on the verses. I think it's Genesis 127, but I'm not 100% sure. Uh, and uh, there's a gloss on the passage about the creation of okay. man, where they basically say, uh, these uh, rabbis basically say that, you know, he was created male with corresponding female parts, mm. he being the singular primordial Adam. And, and so if, if that being was created in the image of God, then the, or the Elohim, then the Elohim are also hermaphroditic. And this is, again, what you see in the depiction of the devas in, mm. in the Indo-Iranian tradition. It's, it's, you know, in Persian miniatures, like, for example, the Shah Ahmed. Mm. Uh, so, you know, I think that's another, uh, another interesting aspect of, yeah. of this, you know, transhumanist vision. Well, you also uh, indicated to me that there's a connection between ancient Persian Zarathustrian thought and the Russian cosmists. Yeah, well, this is a really fascinating to me that Fedorov, uh, the founder of the Russian Cosmos School, was also one of the, the most prominent uh, Iranologists in Russia. You know, the Russians uh, made major contributions to Iranian studies because, after all, the whole early history of Russia overlaps with that of Iran. The earliest cultures in the territory that's now Russia, the Scythians and the Sarmatians, were actually Iranian peoples. So the Ru Iranian studies is very important to the Russians. And uh, Fedorov was one of the you know early uh, contributors to Iranian studies in Russia. And he thought that Zarathustra's worldview was uh, the precursor of Russian cosmism, as, as he was trying to expound it. And in particular, uh, th there are these several ideas that, that he found uh, in Zarathustra um, uh, as heralds of his own worldview. One is the um, progressive evolution of... Uh, of human society, the idea that instead of the cyclical time common to the Greeks and the ancient Hindus, that a history unfolds teleologically through a successive stages, a, a, a successive set of uh, progressively 
um, uh, developing stages. Towards a goal, towards to an towards end point. an apocalyptic end of history. Yeah. Uh, so this is another idea that not only is, is um, history teleological, but history is tending toward an apocalypse. Mm -hmm. And this apocalypse is going to radically transform the human condition. There's a uh, vision uh, 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 of what's called the Freshgard, a kind of a alchemical transformation of all of the beings on the earth who are, as it were, bathed in molten metal. So it's a very alchemical image, the image of the alchemical forge, transforming all of the beings on the earth so that they more perfectly instantiate the realm of forms, which is an idea that Plato got from Zoroastrianism, uh, the, the arch realm of archetypes or perfect forms. And so at the apocalypse, you know, the world would be transformed into a utopia that was a, that was a more perfect reflection of, of the archetypal realm. And then the last idea that uh, Fedorov, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, notes in, in uh, Zoroastrianism as a precursor to, to Russian cosmism uh, is that we should actively will this end of history, that, you know, Zarathustra, unlike many other uh, religious thinkers, placed a, a great emphasis on the human will and humanity's integral role in cosmic history, that it's not all up to some omnipotent God, that uh, humanity is tasked with um, adopting this uh, progressive mentality, with, with uh, choosing this uh, evolutionary creative force and actively bringing about the end of history. And, and so I think these are all ideas that uh, are precursors to uh, transhumanism, or they're really the roots of transhumanism. And so it's not coincidental that the first uh, thinker to coin the term transhumanism is an Iranian, uh, Feridun Esfandiari, uh, or Feridun M. Esfandiari, uh, who later renamed himself FM2030, was an Iranian who uh, spent most of his life teaching at the New School for Social Research in New York. And um, he's the person who coined the term transhumanism. Uh, so, you know, I, I doubt that, you know, uh, it, it's uh, tangential that Zarathustra was the first transhumanist in history, you know, according to Fedorov. As Fondieri's book, Upwingers, uh, was very influential back in the 1970s. I found it quite inspirational because he was suggesting that we, we can move beyond this left-wing, right-wing polarity and and go up instead of to the left or to the right. Uh, I, I love that idea. Yeah, I mean, it's a dangerous idea, though, because, uh, you know, Upwingers is subtitled A Futurist Manifesto. And so, Esfandiari uh, is explicitly connecting himself to the Italian futurists. Mm -hmm. And the Italian futurists are generally categorized as right-wing because F.T. Marinetti, the founder of Italian futurism, was a collaborator of Benito Mussolini in the 1920s. They were very close collaborators. Until later, they had a falling out. And the reason they had a falling out was because Mussolini increasingly came under the influence of conservative Catholics, Catholics and, and other Italian mm -hmm. conservatives. Uh, whereas uh, Marinetti... Uh, was uh, radically opposed to tradition. I mean, he actually advocated going into the Uffizi Museum in Florence with sledgehammers and smashing all of the Renaissance sculptures because he thought that they were chaining Italy to its past. I see. Would have been a criminal thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. But I think it's very important to point out yeah. that when you look at the vision of the world of tomorrow in the 1930s. Uh, when you look at the, the architectural drafts of Hugh Ferris, for example, in America, 
Uh, or even when you look at the neo-futurism in the period of uh, FM 2030, in the mm. period of Feridun Esfandiari. For example, the, the concept drawings of Sid Mead, who was a, a designer and then a futurist artist. Both in the 1930s and then in the persistent reemergence and persistence of futurism in the 1970s and in Esfandiari's time, when Esfandiari is coining the concept of transhumanism as a successor to futurism, there is a kind of aesthetic harmony in this vision of the future. There is a kind of uh, internal cohesion uh, and a grand synthetic vision for how cities would be designed, what interior design would look like, which presumes an organic society or, uh, if not, then at least an, an authoritarian form of government that's able to uh, fully plan society. Mm -hmm. And so th there is a kind of uh, right-wing dimension to futurism going all the way back to Marinetti, but it's not traditionalist. In fact, it's anti-traditionalist. And so maybe, you know, the, the, the ideological conflict that's more appropriate, uh, it, it, to, to characterize, uh, is, n is not one between left and right, but one between traditionalism and, fu and futurism, which you see even in the milieu of fascism in the 1930s. Now I can imagine like a, a Cartesian uh, diagram where you have, uh, Futurism at the top, traditionalism at the bottom, and also left and right going horizontally. Yeah, it's it's much more complex than than what people uh, you know usually think. Like uh, you know, one of the the prominent um, uh, philosophers of the period of Marinetti in Germany was Ernst Junger, um, a philosopher, intellectual, whatever you want to call him. He had served in in World War One and was very impressed with the. Um, uh, power of mechanized warfare. Mm. And he thought of mechanization as a, what he called a forge of Vulcan that was going to reveal that we are not homo sapiens as much as we are homo, homo faber. That, uh, we, our, our essence is to be Promethean creators and engineers. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so, um, you know, you have, and he's, considered a far right-wing thinker, even though he refused to join the Nazi party, Younger mm -hmm. refused to join the Nazi, but he is considered a right-wing thinker, and yet, you know, he's extremely progressive uh, and visionary, like Marinetti, and uh, very opposed to, to any kind of religious conservatism. Now, we've used the term Promethean several times right. in our discussion, and I, I think for benefit of our viewers, it might be you know, good to dig into that a little deeper. I consider you a Promethean thinker. Uh, Prometheus was the, the titan in ancient Greek mythology who uh, gave the gift of fire to humans and as a result was punished. Yes, but more than that, Prometheus is the engineer of man. And so, you know, Mary Shelley uh, subtitled her, her work, The Modern Prometheus, mm -hmm. Frankenstein or The Modern Prometheus. Yeah. And uh, so, Prometheus is the creator of man. And Zeus actually uh, punishes Prometheus, not just for gifting fire to the gods, but the first punishment of Prometheus is for having created man at all. Yeah. And gifting fire to the humans you know, from the gods. Yes, did I say? Yes, right. So, yeah. Pr Prometheus gifts fire to man only because after having engineered humanity to be a race of new gods to, in effect, replace the Olympians, uh, Zeus condemns mankind to slavery. And it's it's because Prometheus's creation is enslaved by Olympus that Prometheus, as a remedy, gifts humanity 
with fire, the fire of the forge, with the power of science and technology, with what the Greeks called techne or craft, uh, the wellspring of all the arts and, and crafts, the, all the arts and sciences. And so, uh, the subtitle of Frankenstein is the modern Prometheus, and you see this idea uh, reiterated uh, throughout the, the whole history of the Frankenstein archetype as it's as it's evolved in popular culture. Uh, so, for example, the film Prometheus, Ridley Scott's uh, 2012 film Prometheus, which is a prequel to Alien, uh, is is about this uh, you know uh, idea of the engineering of man by a rebel god who wants to defeat the existing divine, or, divine order. Um, in uh, the Prometheus film, there's a, a, a man who's the head of a corporation, Wayland, uh, has this corporation, and he has discovered that uh, these extraterrestrials engineered humanity. Mm -hmm. And he sends an expedition into space with archaeologists and other scientists to go find the engineers of humanity because he wants ultimately to attain immortality. It has a kind of a Gilgamesh dimension to it also because he's a man in, in quest of immortality. Uh, but there's an android on board this ship, yeah. Prometheus, which is like the son of uh, Wayland because he's a being engineered by Wayland like Dr. Frankenstein engineers the creature. But the, the irony is that as the story evolves uh, and as it's picked up in the sequel to this film, Alien Covenant, the android is the only one who survives the expedition. They find the engineers at the end of Prometheus. They find the engineers. But what they find is that uh, the engineers, they find remnants of them and, and also discover to their horror that these gods were planning to annihilate humanity. So there's the kind of Noah's flood element in this, that the gods, uh, you know, repented of their creation of man. They regretted that they made man and they were going to wipe the earth clean with a biological weapon. And this biological weapon is, is the alien creature, you know, from, from the 1979 alien film. Uh, so ultimately the android, David, uh, in, in the sequel to Prometheus, Alien Covenant, he becomes the Dr. Frankenstein, ironically. He's the only one who survives the initial expedition. And he, uh, uh, to make a long story short, uh, sets up a Frankenstein's laboratory on the planet of the engineers where he carries out experiments over a long term on a female crew member. Uh, so she had initially survived together with him, but then he basically turns her into a guinea pig and he carries out months of experiments on her, keeping her just barely alive. And the drawings that he does of these various uh, genetic experiments that he's carrying out on her in order to engineer a superhuman form of life are in this uh, exquisite Renaissance style, which which I think is Ridley Scott referring back to Dr. Frankenstein studying the alchemists of the Renaissance like Cornelius Agrippa and Paracelsus and so forth, uh, and portraying David, the android, as a, as a Dr. Frankenstein. So there's this idea, you know, of, of, you know, Prometheus creating a race that is supposed to supersede the gods, uh, but then, you know, it, it supersedes the, the creator himself. It's mm -hmm. the, cre the creation superseding the creator, which basically is just an expression of the, uh, the, the, the life force constantly overcoming itself in new forms. Mm -hmm.
Well, many people associate, you know, the, the Frankenstein legend with the idea that uh, human technology is going to get out of control and become monstrous. Very much so. And, you know, if you look at the, the concept art uh, for Alien and for, for the, you know, the Prometheus films, uh, it was done by H.R. Giger, a uh, Swiss-German artist, uh, and it's absolutely horrific. It's, it's, it's a beautiful uh, portrayal of the potential horrors of transhumanism. Um, and also uh, very clearly demonstrates the debt of, of transhumanism to alchemy. H.R. Uh, uh, Giger's first book was titled The Necronomicon in a conscious reference to H.P. Lovecraft. Um, and, you know, the narrative uh, of, of Lovecraft in At the Mountains of Madness is echoed in some ways by this expedition to the planet of the engineers in the in the Prometheus saga. Uh, it, you know, uh, the role that Antarctica plays as um, the wrecked uh, uh, cradle of the, of the, you know, uh, gods of the Cthulhu mythos in H.P. Lovecraft is, uh, is, uh, the role that's taken up by the planet of the engineers. I mean, these become mm -hmm. symbolically equivalent. Uh, and so, you know, Giger's art, I think, is also a very clear example of the alchemical, origins and occult vision that's at the wellspring of the transhumanist movement, despite the overly reductive and materialist form that it's taken in people like Ray Kurzweil. Mm -hmm. Well, what a fascinating discussion, Jason. <laughs> We've covered an encyclopedia's worth of, of material, and I know we could delve into this so much deeper. It, it seems as if the uh, one of the many lessons I'm drawing from this conversation is that uh, those viewers who may be interested in transhumanism would do well to consider its roots in such things as cosmism and alchemy and uh, uh, Zoroastrian uh, theology. Yes, and you know, I think that, uh, especially given the the dangers posed by the technological singularity um, and the perils of navigating this uh, transition into a transhuman condition, it's very important to remember the spiritual origins and and the metaphysical dimension of this movement, um, and you know, to fuse the kind of quest for uh, superhuman capacities that you see, say, in, in Michael Murphy's Future of the Body, mm -hmm. that you see in the Esalen movement, uh, or th that you see in people like um, Frederick Myers with his concept of uh, preverts who are, um, who are signaling the imaginal form of humanity while man r remains in the larval state. It's important to to uh, not draw some artificial distinction between uh, technological augmentation of humanity and a uh, will toward the spiritual evolution of man into a post-human condition. Jason Reza Giorgiani, thank you so much for being with me. I'm delighted that you're here in Albuquerque. I'm looking forward to several more conversations uh, with you, which I'm sure will be equally fascinating. I'm looking forward to it as well. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. And thank you for being with us. Thank you.